Revelation chapter 21, if you have your Bibles with you this morning. Revelation chapter 21. And I am going to start by asking those who are in charge uh, to see if they know where the clicker is, because I cannot advance uh, the slides here. Hold on one second. Just pretend this is a little uh, technical uh, pause. Do you all have that back there? Here comes John Pietro to save the day. So, because I can't preach, you know, unless I have this uh, little uh, item here, right? Okay, it's not. There we go. Ah, there we go. Revelation. I had to be reminded what I was going to preach here. So, I'm glad that you you have that. Revelation 21. You know, if you fly much, some of you do all the time. Uh, Doug Verley loves to be on planes flying all over the country, I know, for one. Some of you have an opportunity to fly quite a bit. You will inevitably find yourself on a plane with passengers going to different ultimate destinations. You're all on the same plane, but when the plane lands, some are at their destination and others simply have a layover on their way to another location. Like the time I flew from Minneapolis to Detroit years ago, in the month of, in month of February. Those of us who were getting off in Detroit were wearing jeans and winter jackets and warm hats and shoes, but there were about 20 people on the plane who were wearing Bermuda shorts and bright flowered shirts and sandals and sunglasses because they were not getting off at Detroit. As it turned out, their ultimate destination was Aruba. That, for those of you who don't know, is an island off the coast of Venezuela in the Caribbean with warm crystal waters and white sands, a tropical paradise. But the rest of us were getting off in Detroit. And Detroit is not the same thing as Aruba, especially in February. It was not difficult, I'll never forget, to spot the people getting off at Detroit versus the people who were heading to Aruba. But not only because of their dress, but also because of their demeanor. The people going to Detroit were, on average, sullen, resigned, unimpressed, (laughs) maybe a little bit grumpy. But the people going to Aruba were happy. They were laughing. Maybe everybody knew. Everybody was like, where were you guys going? And they all knew that these people were going to Aruba. They were talking loud and generally having an obnoxiously good time. (laughs) I loved them in the spirit, but I hated them in the flesh. (laughs) But you know, someone may have looked at our plane load of passengers and thought, you know, why is there a difference? They're all on the same plane. They're all being offered the same drinks and those bags of tiny pretzels they give you now. They're all going to land in Detroit at the same time. They'll be greeted by the same pilot as they get off the plane. What is the difference? And the answer is quite obvious. While they all may be sharing the same leg of the journey at that moment, they all have different destinations. And it is their destination that determines how they look at the journey. Too often we get focused on the discomforts and struggles and pains and disappointments and frustrations of the journey. But the Lord revealed this prophecy of revelation precisely that we might know our destination because he knows that our understanding of the destination gives us faith and courage 
and hope that we need along the way as we make the journey and make it to His glory. And this passage that we're finding ourselves in right now is one of the most hopeful texts in all the Word of God. It literally describes what our forever will look like. And in the end, it is merely just a glimpse of what our forever will look like. Let's begin reading the first seven verses of this chapter once again. In verse 1, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from before the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God. And he will be my son. That is one destination. And it's the time when God's vindication of himself and his people has finally arrived. Who was in the right and who was in the wrong at last revealed. And the end of the journey for those who know God, who have faithfully followed Jesus Christ, it will be glorious for us. We've been looking at these verses as three profound ways in which God will do away with our present reality, everything we see right now, and create something new in its place with the understanding that how we live in the midst of our present reality as we're making the journey is shaped by our understanding of that new reality, the destination of that journey. What are these profound ways in which God will take away the the, the old and, and recreate the new? Well, the first, it says here, will be a new heaven and a new earth. The very geographical place where we live for God and serve and worship in will be transformed. And only what is done for Jesus Christ will last. And that encourages us on the journey to lay up treasure in heaven, to keep our mind on that which is eternal, because so many things we're concerned with right now will be long gone in the end. They're not bad things that we're doing. They will just be gone. And we need to keep them in perspective. Only what we do for the glory of God is going to last. There's another profound way that God will wipe away the old and replace it with the new. Not only is there a new heaven and a new earth, but there is new harmony with God. And we talked about that last Lord's Day. In other words, a personal oneness with God that we will experience like we have never experienced it before. And what is remarkable that we saw last week is that the emphasis in this passage is not that we will go to be with God. The emphasis here is that he will come to be with us. That's how he phrases it in this passage. The creator of the universe expresses his desire to dwell with us. The voice from before the throne in verse 3 declares, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. And not only is God going to live among us who know him, but the closeness of that relationship is something that right now we can scarcely imagine. In verse 7, God himself speaking from his throne says of each person who knows him, and I hope you know God today through Jesus Christ. He says to each one of us who knows him, I will be his God and he will be my son. We already know we have that relationship. We're promised it in scripture, but it'll be a full realization of that relationship. Paul tells us right now the Holy Spirit brings that conviction home to us. Right now, we can know that God loves us. We can know that we can come with confidence before his throne. Paul describes this knowledge in Romans 8 when he says that the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit. I think some of you have had that experience, right? You, you just, uh, you know, sometimes in your walk with the Lord, you're reading the scripture, you're praying to him, there's this witness of the spirit that yes, I am a child of God. He impresses upon us that insurance, that assurance that we really belong to him as sons and daughters. And it is through this witness that we cry out to our heavenly father with this mature term of endearment, uh, endearment, Abba, Father. The spirit is enough to remind us of the sweet fellowship we enjoy with God. And this knowledge encourages us to seek God and to pray to him and seek to know him better in this world while we're making the journey. But at the end of the journey, God will embrace us as his children in person, we will know his love and a harmony with him that is unprecedented, really precedented only by our Savior's own relationship with the Father. Jesus died for us in order to bring many sons and daughters to glory that we might know the Father in the same way he knows the Father. That is something we can scarcely imagine at this time. At the end of the journey is a new heaven and earth and a new harmony of God. Now, these unspeakable blessings that await us at the end of our journey are more than enough for us. If we, if we just ended the sermon right here and that's all he said, we would, we would say, glory to God. Let's wait and see what that's going to be like. But with God, there's always more. There's a super abundance of his grace. And if we can finish our perusal of these opening verses of chapter 21 this morning, there's one more profound way that we can summarize what God does for us when he destroys the old and brings in the new. And it is that we will have a new human experience. A new human experience. What it means to live as a human being in the sight of God and to glorify him will be a new experience. What will our lives be like in this new world? Well, I want to start by saying, John doesn't mention it here, but I want us just to remember in the full context of the New Testament, before we look at these verses, that we will be living in newly created, glorified bodies. Paul describes these bodies in 1 Corinthians 15 as powerful bodies, bodies that will not decay, bodies that will not be susceptible to any of the weaknesses and sicknesses that are common right now the things that we pray for often, the things that I prayed for this morning, none of this will be in existence. In short, it will be a body that we have that is like the body of Jesus Christ. He was the first fruits of this resurrection. We who follow are the next fruits of the resurrection. 
But the full description of that body is something for another time. In this passage, John is shown the larger picture of what God does for us in this new world, this new earth. First of all, I want you to notice that there is a central city on this new earth, a city in which God will dwell with his people. John says in verse 2, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. If you go to verse 9 of chapter 21 and read all the way through chapter 22, verse 5, you will find a very beautiful description of this new city. So I'm not really going to say much about it this morning. I want to point out at least two things, and then we're going to come back for a couple of weeks and really look at this new Jerusalem. The first thing I want to say is, remember in chapter 19 when Christ returns, Jesus says, in, uh, John says in verse 11, I saw heaven opened, Right? And then Jesus Christ comes riding forth on a white horse and his armies on white horses coming after him. That's in Revelation chapter 19. Prior to that, there are little openings in heaven. At the beginning of chapter 4, John sees a door opened in heaven and he's pretty amazed about that. And then in chapter 11 and chapter 15, there are these brief glimpses of heaven opening and people able to see the, the throne room of heaven revealing what is going on. But in chapter 19, the sky is split open and Jesus Christ comes riding forth. The things that are in heaven begin to descend to the things on earth, things that were only in the realm above that we can't see right now, things that we know are going on and things that are in heaven right now that we know are there, we can't, we can't see them. That was always the case. But now, the, the unseen is starting to collide with this scene to become one. What you're seeing here is the complete erasure of the distinction of heaven as the place where God dwells and earth where, is the place where humans live. It's, it's gone. This is the finality of that. The throne room of God, his heavenly temple and all of its glory, what we've seen in heaven is now located upon the earth. It comes down. And you understand what this means? There is no more visible world and invisible world. I mean, we're so used to the truth that this world is not our home, that there's a greater reality that we cannot see. And there's debate about that, right? And there are people in the, in the public sector. They're like, what we see is all there is. And there's nothing more beyond. And, and, and pagan people say, yes, there is something more beyond. And they, have, they contribute it beyond to different gods and goddesses and, and so forth. Secularists are defined as those who say there's nothing more than what we see right now. It's true that there's something more than what we see now. But then that will no longer be true. No longer will someone tell us that we need to set our mind on things above and not on things of the earth because the things that are above are the things that are on the earth. No longer will somebody say, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven because there is no more laying up. The earth, the new earth will be a place where we are enjoying all of the treasure of this new reality. The second thing I want to point out is how the city is described. It's as a bride adorned for her husband at the least. This, again, speaks of, the, speaks of the closeness, the intimacy that God will share with his people. God is not marrying a city. 
The city consists of the people who dwell in the city. So it is depicted as a bride making the processional to the house of her husband with breathtaking beauty. And that beauty, as I said, will be described later on in the passage. John says, for instance, down in verse 11 of this chapter, that the radiance of the city was like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. In verse 18, he says that the city was pure gold, like clear glass, that is no blemish. And in verse 21, that the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass, which means that's gold with light that can shine through it. It's popular to talk about heaven and the streets of gold. But notice here that the streets of gold are not in heaven. They're on the new earth. They're in the new holy city, Jerusalem. I'm sorry if that's disappointing to some of you. If you memorized a kid's song when you were young about the streets of gold, that's, that's sort of a conflation of the, the heavenly ideas. And you know what? I don't blame people for getting confused because the Bible doesn't really say a lot about what that world is going to be like. I imagine that God isn't uh, really sure how to explain it to us. I mean, he could explain it to us, but it would just baffle us. There's so much we don't understand. And we've never seen gold like this. In fact, the finest, purest gold on earth that people treasure is given to us by God so that we can get an idea of what real gold looks like so that we might have a little foretaste in the present world about what is coming in the next one. In fact, there are two very helpful chapters that many of you have read at the end of C.S. Lewis's book, The Last Battle. This is the final book in his Chronicles of Narnia series. And in these chapters, Lewis is doing more than just telling us the story. He's helping us to understand the reality of this new earth that the Bible talks about in these chapters of Revelation. In this part of the story, at the end of the last battle, all of the characters in all of the stories of the Chronicles of Narnia who loved Aslan have come home at last to Aslan's country, which is like the new earth in Revelation 21 and 22. And they're all looking with amazement at the mountains and hills and trees and flowers and the sea and all of the colors. And they're all struck by the same idea that what they're seeing is bigger and the colors deeper and the whole world more vibrant than anything they had known in their life in Narnia. And they're all struggling to put into words what they're feeling until one of the characters summarizes it like this. He says, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia, he says, is that it sometimes looked a little like this. And here, I believe, Lewis helps us understand one of the distinctions between this world and the world to come, the precious gifts that God has given to us that we love in this world, the, the colors of the rainbow after the storm, the blue skies, the majestic mountains, the quiet beauty of wildflowers in the woods, the graceful creatures of the earth. We passed some deer running this morning, and they were just beautiful to look at the towering redwoods, the magnificent display of lights in the night sky, and love and companionship and courage and strength and goodness and kindness. God has allowed us to enjoy these gifts now, fallen though they are, 
in order that we might know a little of what we will enjoy then, that we might yearn for it and cling in hope to him for it. And only when we are in this new earth, in our new resurrected bodies, will we fully experience what it means to be a human being created in God's image, to know and love him and enjoy all of his created wonders. That is the end of the journey. That is what we're looking for. This is indeed a new human experience. It's the ultimate human experience. It's it's the reason we were created. But as we go further into the chapter, we're given some more detail. And before we go into verse 4, which is our next real stopping point, I want to ask you to turn back to a passage in Revelation chapter 7. This is verse 7. Of course, I'll have this for you. Uh, Revelation chapter 7. And I'll have it for you on the screen in just a second. But I, I'm not asking you just to turn uh, back uh, in, in chapters. I'm asking to you to actually turn back in time because uh, we were studying Revelation in February of 2021, if anybody remembers, uh, which was like a half a year before we even came into this building. But you might remember that in studying through the book of Revelation, there are points in this prophecy where John will describe something that jumps to the end of the story. Or he'll be describing something which jumps uh, years earlier to give us some backstory. And this is one of the places where he jumps to the end of the story. We find that John is describing these innumerable multitudes of people around the throne of God dressed in white. They're waving palm branches, which is a sign of victory. And they're praising God and the Lamb. And John says, then one of the 24 elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And John says, I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. In other words, they died as martyrs. But now they are glorified in God's presence. Revelation is written to encourage the suffering ones and the persecuted ones in particular. Remember, uh, I probably haven't said it enough lately, but you really don't understand the full impact of Revelation unless you read it as someone who probably will die as a martyr. And so he says in verse 15, therefore they are before the throne of God. This is, the, this is part of the end of their journey. That's not the full end yet but it's what they're looking at right now. They are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. And even more, he says, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And what I wanted you to see here is that these immense blessings that we can only long for right now are made real only because we are with God and the Lamb, our Savior, only because we know the immediate shelter and provision of our good shepherd tending us in person 
so that we will never more hunger and never more thirst and never more encounter any danger or pain or sadness. And when it says that he will guide them, that is the ones dressed in white gathered around God's throne, to springs of living water and wipe away every tear from their eyes, that is something that these glorified saints in Revelation 7 have still to look forward to. Verse 17 is a cut to the end. John is seeing what's happening with them right now in heaven, but they, or at least during the tribulation period, but they still have something to look forward to. And it's the same thing we have to look forward to. The springs of living water and the promise to wipe away every tear are those same promises that we read here in Revelation chapter 21. Before the blessings of verse four, we have the presence of God dwelling with his people in verse three. And it is in this context of his presence only in this new world that he can say in chapter 21, verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. I want to unpack this verse for just a few minutes. When the voice says that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, this is an expression that means that God will take away everything that causes us to grieve or, or have pain. And this is a universal promise that all people understand because you know what? Wherever you go in the world, no matter what country you're in, no matter what people group you're with, no matter what language they speak, we express pain through tears. When we sorrow, we cry. Some pastors and teachers get very specific about these tears. Some say, for instance, that they are tears for those we know who died without Christ. I would say they are at least that. But really what he's saying here is that it doesn't matter what makes you sad. Whatever grieves you now, whatever moves you to weep, what, what tears have you shed this past year? all of the reasons for those tears will be taken away. They're gone. They're, they're a distant memory. Tears over broken relationships, sickness, suffering, failure, regret, things you're ashamed of, consequences from sin, rejection, stress, anger, disappointment, it's all gone. There will be no reason for crying. We won't be able to be sad about anything. And hand in hand with this promise is the destruction of our greatest enemy, death. One of the greatest reasons for our crying and sadness, death will be no more. Death is the ugly, unnatural separation from what God has given us to enjoy. That's what death is. Death was not part of God's original creation. God did not desire to separate us from his blessings. Sin entered the world. Or I should say death entered the world through sin. But because death has already been defeated through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, those of us who know Jesus Christ through faith do not succumb to death. We survive it. And we pass through the valley of the shadow of death to an even better life with greater joys because we are united with the Son of God who conquered death. For death to be no more then means that on the new earth, there will be no power that will ever separate us from God and the Savior 
and his blessings, nothing to end or disrupt the relationship that we share with him, nothing that can ever take us away from that glorious place. We will be there forever. Now, in the rest of the verse, this, this loud voice from before the throne gets even more specific about the things that will be no more. Because tears are gone and death is gone, he says, neither shall there be mourning. That's gone too. This is not the kind of mourning where somebody quietly suffers. This word indicates a great lament, a loud mourning, because of something that causes tremendous sorrow. It's interesting, only 13 times this word is used in the New Testament. Over half of those times occur in Revelation 18, the earth wailing over the destruction of the commerce, of, of commercial Babylon being destroyed in that chapter. But it's this great outcome or outcry, uh, and, and this, this crying because of things that we don't want to happen but the text also says that there will be no more crying. And that seems a little redundant, doesn't it? Because he already said he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. But this refers to this loud crying, this clamor, this outcry of great emotion. The word is used in all kinds of ways, good and bad. Elizabeth cries out because Mary is burying the Christ child. Jesus cries out, Lazarus, come forth. That's the verb that's used. But it's also used of the Jews crying out, away with him, crucify him. Or the voices rejecting the apostle Paul in Acts 22, where they're throwing dust in the air and throwing off their cloaks. It's a great emotional cry. In other words, in this new world, no one will have reason to burst forth with emotional frustration or anguish because of something that they despise or disagree with. We will bask with satisfaction that the blessed will of God is being fulfilled perfectly in the new earth. But there's more. There's also no more pain. Pain refers to suffering, physical pain, or anguish, or distress. The word is used in Revelation of the people in chapter 16 who received harmful and painful sores. So they gnawed their tongues in anguish in the darkness and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. I don't know if you have a favorite here, but I love the fact that pain will be no more. Because you know what? I hate pain. Uh, I don't know if anybody else is really, really glad that pain is gone, but you can imagine living with no pain. I mean, literally not being able to feel pain or anguish or sorrow. We can't really conceive of that right now, but that's the promise. And I know pain in this life is not all a bad thing. Pain is associated with punishment, which when just, it has a good effect. Pain is associated with discipline and pain is associated with the pressure that God sometimes puts in our lives in order to direct us to him, in order to help us to trust in him. Pain is not a bad thing on earth, but if there is no more pain in the new earth, it means there's no more good reason for pain. There's no longer need for punishment or pressure or discipline. Notice here, by the way, he does not say that there is no more fear. But what do we fear? We fear pain and loss and anguish and sorrow and separation. On the new earth, our fear is gone because God has removed anything that would ever give us reason to fear. 
save for our profound and undying respect and loyalty to the one who created us, who we rejoice with forever. And all these things are gone, the verse tells us, because the former things have passed away. These are the former things that came into the world because of sin. That's why they're the former things. When the world was created and the man and the woman were living in absolute harmony, there was no death or mourning or crying or pain. That's not what Adam and Eve experienced in the garden. But when they ate of the forbidden fruit of the tree, they began to die. They began their separation from the blessings of God. God drove them from the garden and to the woman, God said, you shall bring forth children in pain. And to Adam, he said, you shall eat of the fruit of the ground in pain. So death came and pain came and crying pain, uh, crying came. Uh, Genesis 4.10, the Lord God said to Cain, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. One of my earliest memories of Bible stories is sitting on the couch with my mom and dad looking at Kenneth Taylor's little storybook called The Picture in, uh, the Bible in Pictures uh, for Little Eyes. Can any of you relate to this? Are you familiar with that? Okay, some of you. Oh, we need to get that book passed around. This is a classic, you guys. This really is. I cut my teeth on the Bible probably on this little book when I was three and four years old. And I don't think that we appreciate how formative books like this are for small children. Mature artwork, not cartoons and simple language shaping the story of redemption and the seriousness of it in their little moral imaginations. There are pictures from this little book that are indelibly pressed on my mind to this day, and one of them is the banishment of Adam and Eve from the garden. And the picture book shows Adam and Eve a page earlier, so happy and spending time with God and the light is coming down from heaven on them. They're smiling and they're so happy and the animals are playing all around them. And it's a wonderful scene. But it's a horrifying picture to a little four-year-old mind to see these same people being cast out of the garden. And the narration that you can't probably see from there reads this way. Adam and Eve are not happy now. Do you know why they are so sad? It is because they have been bad. They did something God told them not to do. God told them they could eat anything except the fruit from one tree. God told them not to eat that one kind, but they could eat all the other kinds. The tree was so pretty and the fruit on it looked so nice that Eve wanted to eat it, but God said no. Then Satan, who is God's enemy, told Eve to eat it. And even if God said not to, Eve took the fruit and ate some of it. Then she gave some to Adam, and he ate it too. Now God is punishing Adam and Eve. He is sending them out of the beautiful garden, and they can never come back again. And the human experience since the garden has been shaped by this haunting truth that is in this little book, this last statement that we can never come back again. Our human experience has been shaped by that, that our race, because of our disobedience, was rightly thrust outside the immediate presence of God with no longer any right to draw near to him and know his blessings. No right to ever come back again. 
But that is the very relationship that God has been restoring throughout human history with the promise in the Old Testament of one who would come to bring us near to God again and the fulfillment of that promise in the New Testament through the coming of Jesus Christ, the Lamb, through whom we who once were far off have been brought near to God through his blood. So do you see what Revelation 21 and 22 are in essence? This is God finally bringing us back again. This is our re-entry into Eden. And not just Eden as it was before, but an even better Eden, a garden paradise where no sin will ever invade, where no death will ever separate Because this new human experience is marked with this promise. Verse 5 says, He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. What we're reading here, you can count on this from God. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Because God knows that he is making this promise to thirsty people. We thirst for fulfillment. We thirst for rest. We thirst for joy. Sometimes we, we, first, we thirst for real meaning in our lives. In fact, some of you may be very thirsty today. Because the journey can get rough and disappointment and heartache and pain is real. But the Lord is revealing these truths to us so that we might have courage and hope that he will soon quench every thirst completely and eternally when he brings us finally to our home. Let's pray together. Father, we're...